You are listening to National Security Law Today. Hello, this is Holly. Today we are presenting the second ethics webinar, discussion held during our recent program series on emerging issues in national security law. The discussion today on leadership, ethics, and COVID-19 is with Judge James Baker and Amy Jeffries. Good afternoon. My name is Jamie Baker. Most of you will know me. It's good to be with you again. I'm a member of the ABA Rule of Law Initiative Board of Directors, and I'm a professor at Syracuse University at the Law School and the Maxwell School of Public Affairs and Citizenship. Today's session will consist of a conversation with Amy Jeffress. As some of you will know, or most of you will know, who have worked with her in government, she has had many government positions, but she is now a partner at Arnold and Porter, where she is the co-chair of the White Collar Defense and Investigations Practice. But we know her from her prior service in the world of national security, where she was at the Department of Justice as counselor to the Attorney General. She was also that person who got to be the legat in London. And, uh, <laughs> and for many years, uh, she was a prosecutor in the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C., uh, heading up the National Security Division there. But that's not why I invited Amy to participate in today's conversation on ethics. I invited Amy to participate because she is held in such high regard by the Washington Bar. I snuck around behind her back. I was trying to find people to give me stories to tell about her because I don't like reading bios. I like telling stories. And all I got back, including from the managing partner at Arnold and Porter, was all you can say is she ha she's held in the highest regard by everybody who knows her. And that's actually true. And that includes me as well. She also is one of those people and one of those lawyers who moves seamlessly from the world of law skill, arguing in court, doing the things lawyers do, and moving back and forth into the policy world, the legal policy world, the public policy world, combining those two important skills. And then the third reason Amy's here is because the bottom line is in national security, most of the challenges come from the friction of ethics, the friction between agencies working over the Department of Justice, and the friction that occurs at that fulcrum between law and physical security. There we look for these lawyers who have that ethical touch and the personality to do the right thing when it's hardest to do the right thing. Today, we're gonna to talk about three things. We're gonna talk about COVID, and the impact of COVID on law practice and what additional pressures it might put on areas like the lawyer's advisor, Rule 2.1, competence and diligence, 1.1 and 1.3. And notice that I was required to mention the model rules and here I am doing so. And then we're gonna talk about the state of the profession. Uh, as I know you all do every year when it comes out, you read the ABA report on the profession. We have done so, and we'd like to draw to your attention a couple of the highlights that we think raise ethical issues and talk about them. And then what we're going to do, what we really want to do is I'm going to ask Amy about who some of her role models are from whom she derives ethical guidance in principle. Amy, I, I should say, if you wish to make an opening statement, you're welcome to. <laughs> I don't know if you prepared an opening statement, but if not, I would like to just ask you to first give us some observations about the practice of law and COVID. How has that impacted 
your practice as a partner in a, in a major Washington law firm? And what are some of the trends you've seen? So great question, and thank you for the very nice introduction, and uh, and thanks to my friends who and my <laughs> my chairman whom you contacted who refused to <laughs> give you any, any any negative feedback. I'm grateful for that, but I can tell you about the particular practice that I have, which is mostly an investigations practice, and the way that that's been affected by the virtual operating status that we're in. Just to provide some context, I work out of Arnold and Porter's DC office, and that office has been closed since March 16th of last year, and we're not encouraged to go in. We can use the office for special purposes if we request permission and if everyone fills out COVID health forms and complies with the rules and so forth, but I've only been in a handful of times since last March. Mostly we're all working from home, and I've actually been surprised at how we have adapted, how effectively we've adapted to that environment. Um, The firm, of course, has given us resources like extra monitors and webcams and so forth to be able to make it work, Um, but also pretty effectively over video. But there is an exception to that that I want to talk about in direct response to your question, and that is client interviews. So my practice, I have some advisory work um, relating to the Foreign Agents Registration Act and some other areas of the law, but a lot of what I do is invest investigations, either conducting investigations for clients, for companies, corporate clients, or university clients, or whoever, you know, nonprofits, whoever's asking us to to work on the investigation, or I advise individuals who are either subjects or witnesses of those investigations, whether they are internal investigations or investigations being conducted by the government. And clients, especially individual clients who are asked for interviews are understandably nervous, and they obtain counsel because they want counsel's advice and want to rely on counsel. And that is most effective in an in-person setting. So the few times I've been in the office have been to be there with clients who were being interviewed either on video or on the telephone by either FBI agents or counsel from other firms who have been conducting investigations. Um, And uh, and those uh, circumstances we've gotten masks and set up conference room where we could be distanced, but at least we were able to be there in person. And I think clients like that contact because they want to be able to look at their lawyer and just look at their lawyer's face face to face and make sure that everything is okay and that they're they're doing okay. And I think that that's a sense of security and nothing is quite like the, the physical presence of a lawyer in order to be able to just, just give someone the, the confidence and the comfort really that, um, that things are going okay, that there's someone there who is watching and listening and paying attention and is not going to let them go astray in an interview. So that's where I've seen the pandemic affect the practice most. And that also accounts for the very few circumstances where I've actually been in meetings in person with clients. Do you think it would be possible to effectively advise a client in such a setting remotely? That's a good question, too. And I have also done interviews where we have had to be remote. And I'm, I'm thinking of one in particular where we set up a WhatsApp chat so that the client was being interviewed over the phone by another lawyer, um, but was able to consult and to, to watch her phone in this case so that we had some, you know, 
communication apart from the interview answers that she was providing. And then any agent or lawyer who's conducting an interview will, of course, advise a witness that they're allowed to take a break. And I think that's happening more in these circumstances than it does normally because people want to be able to connect and say, is everything going okay? Was that answer okay? And so we're, we're, we're accommodating with you know, other avenues of communication and breaks and, and trying to do the best that we can. I do think it's harder when you're not physically present, but we're working around it with those kinds of communications. Now, you've been in government life as well, actually longer than private life. What are some of the areas of government practice that you think have to be done in person? If you were advising government lawyers, what would you say, hey, it's fine to work from home, but these are the things where you ought to be coming, thinking about coming into the office? Well, I'll start with the classified situation. So I do still in my practice, I maintain a clearance and I do work on matters that require a security clearance. And that includes matters that require me to go in to a SCIF for one matter and to a government agency for another. And so I have done that on occasion. And I see the government employees, that this is just an occasional frolic and detour for me in my practice, but for the government attorneys who work regularly in the handling of classified information, this is their day-to-day life. And so I think it's very challenging and there are staffing issues. You know, some offices are only bringing in, you know, either one half or two thirds of their employees on any given day because they want to be able to physically distance in order to prevent the spread of COVID. And so that just is a resource challenge. And so I feel for my, you know, former government colleagues who are working under those um, circumstances and finding that their days are longer than usual and more challenging than usual because they don't have the adequate staffing given these circumstances. And so that's a real, a real issue. One of the offices I, I work with last week, their technical advisor currently has COVID and so no one, no one's printers can be fixed. No one's, no one's, uh, you know, it, it causes problems. It's just harder. And so there, there are some physical limitations, especially in the government. And then the other big area of my practice that's affected is there's no trials. And so judges are having hearings by video where they can, but no jury is being assembled, at least not in DC. I'm not sure if there are jury trials elsewhere in the country at this stage, but DC keeps pushing back the date at which they think jury trials will be possible, and they haven't had them since last March. So that's a real problem, and that's affecting the backlog of criminal cases in particular, but also civil cases. And so I think that there's going to be a a real backlog in the system, even once we are up and running in some kind of format where we can have jury trials again. This whole year is lost, and that's going to have an effect on court dockets and criminal proceedings. And now in D.C., there's this whole series of cases brought relating to the insurrection from January 6th, and those are going to be backed up along with everything else. So it's having a real impact on the courts as well. I have not had a trial scheduled during this period, but some of my colleagues have, and they've all been pushed off. And I think eventually the courts might figure out how to do jury trials remotely, but I think defendants would have to consent. And I'm not sure that the consent is valid if someone is detained and you know, that might be a coercive environment. So I think all these questions are swirling about what that postponement of the trial work is going to cause. If you were in a litigation section of a government OGC office, what would you be doing now in anticipation for this backlog? Let's say you were at Justice or you were the general counsel of uh, an intelligence community agency and you were thinking of all the cases that were piling up. 
anything they should be doing now or just saying, hey, this is great, no FOIA litigation? <laughs> well, on that point, I do think that they're going to have to prioritize and just go through and figure out. So when things resume, what are the cases we need to push forward? What are our you know, priorities in terms of making sure that the case goes forward? Cases where there are a lot of witnesses might take priority because you don't want to lose your witnesses, cases that are particularly significant in terms of the deterrent effect or, you know, just high priority. I think people are going to want to have lists and just some cases and maybe FOIA is among those are going to drop to the bottom. I think there are people who aren't going to be happy with that, but that, that may be the reality. One of the things that struck me about COVID is that we, we always knew with a pandemic that there was a premium on acting quickly. And yet, People get nervous when they want to act quickly. Sometimes lawyers find courage in numbers. When you're a more junior lawyer and you're giving advice in a government setting, sometimes you have the comfort that you can go to your legal advisor, your general counsel, or the assistant legal advisor, whatever it is, and talk it through. I imagine that there's less opportunity to do that sometimes with a remote context. And yet it's so important to act, to stay on top of deadlines. And in national security world, the deadlines often come with real world deadlines rather than fake bureaucratic deadlines. What advice, if any, do you have for a younger lawyer or perhaps an older lawyer about having the courage to plow forward and make the hard decisions when you're by yourself sitting at your desk in your library you know, for the 16th hour of Zoom that day? Right, well, again, I, I think that there are situations where you shouldn't act yourself. You should you should make sure you're consulting with whoever you have an obligation to consult with, whether it's your client or your supervisor. Um, and so I just think sometimes it's harder to do so in this environment where we are mostly working on our own. But the other thing I'll say, I, I think I, I'm, I'm getting your point. You have, you do in certain situations have to have the confidence to trust your ability to act or, or react as it were and do what has to be done if you don't have time. One way to help be, prepare yourself for those situations is to plan ahead. Um, and with respect to COVID, our firm at least was planning very diligently for a few months before we shut down. So the IT department, for example, said to everyone in a series of weekends before we ultimately shut down, please take home your laptop and make sure that you can dial in and access the system and uh, and that you have what you need at home in case we need to shut down quickly. And then right before, I think the March 12th and 13th, we were going to go on a plan where half the office came in and then you know we, we, we had a sort of a week A and a week B set up. And then given the uh, severity of the pandemic, we shut down altogether a little bit unexpectedly, but because we had prepared people with the technology, it the transition was relatively smooth. And so that is an, one example, but I think that can translate to other situations where be prepared to know how to react. Think of the situations that might happen. I mean, and there's lots of continuity in government planning um, that the government does. Um, but as a lawyer with your own cases or responsibilities, you can think through what might happen. What are the unexpected events that could throw a wrench in what you're planning to do? And, and what would you do? And think through it and plan. Let's pivot and talk a little bit about the profession. I, I took a look, as, as I know you did, at the uh, annual report the ABA puts out on the profession. And I'm going to th throw a couple of statistics at the audience one, because they're fun, and then a couple of them are not fun. They're, they're statistics that we should be concerned about and, and that I will ask you about, Amy. So how many lawyers are there in the United States in 2020? 
anybody want to venture a guess? Uh, 1,328,692. Don't forget the two at the end there. And that's actually down from 2019 when there were uh, 1,352,000 and 27 uh, lawyers. These are barred lawyers. Uh, Between 2010 and 2020, the number of lawyers in the United States increased by 10.4%. The population as a whole increased by 6.3%. Which state has the most lawyers? Take a moment and guess. You're probably thinking California, but the answer is uh, New York. New York leads the way, uh, 184,662. 95,000 of them in Manhattan alone. (laughs) That's a huge chunk of the overall number. Isn't it? Yeah, they're all in in Manhattan. uh, That's a 17% increase in the number of lawyers in the last decade in New York. Uh, the three states with the leading increase in number of lawyers in the past decade, for those of you who are thinking of retiring from government, which you're not permitted to do, Florida, 26% increase in the number of lawyers in the last decade, Texas, 21%, Georgia, 19%. So here's the one you'll all enjoy, highest per capita number of lawyers in a state, or here's the clue, state, territory, or district got to be D.C. It's D.C. And they rigged the numbers this year to make it look look better than it is. Uh, they only counted lawyers who actually lived in D.C. Uh, last year, they counted lawyers who lived in the DMV. Uh, so they counted anybody who went to D.C. to work. And then they had 56,000 lawyers, one per every 13 citizens. <laughs> Proper ratio, one to 13, everybody with their own lawyer. Uh, but because they're only counting D.C. residents who work in D.C. this year, it's 27,000, uh, which gives you one lawyer per every 25 people. So it's much, much harder to find a lawyer. Um, <laughs> the uh, In terms of gender uh, breakdown, 64% of lawyers in, in the United States are male, which even I can do this math after some effort, 36% then are female. And from 1950 to 1970, the percentage of male to female attorneys was 97% male, 3% uh, female. In 2000, it was 73-27. So that, you, there's, a, there's a trend here. Since 2016, the majority of law students have been female, not male. Uh, the percentage for this year is 53%, 47%. Uh, so that's interesting. Lawyers of color, 14%. And that is a figure that has remained static, essentially static in the past decade, which is interesting. Uh, Median age, 47.5. And there's uh, different theories about that. When lawyers start professionally a little later, and that's one reason, and they can work longer, of course, because it's not a, a manual labor thing. So this is always, this is one of my favorites. The Bureau of Labor Statistics, which is the gold standard for um, statistics, compiles the average salary for the top 100 highest paid professions in the United States. And the average salary, uh, but this there's a trick here uh, because they can't get at it. The average salary for lawyers is $145,300, but that's not accounting for equity partnership take because they can't get at it. So that's just salary. And there, there are obviously ways of getting at that. Um, And you'll be pleased to know, audience, uh, that that puts us number 22 on the list as a profession between national science managers, natural science managers, 
which is 21, and podiatrists coming in at 23. So, so we've edged out podiatrists. Uh, 13 of the 14 top highest paying professions are medical professions. They've broken it down. Oh, wow. in words. Uh, and CEOs don't show up until I think it was number 10. Uh, so it's all medical with uh, CEOs and whatever a natural science manager is. Um, and lawyers are at 22. So here, here, but here's a couple of things that I wanted to ask you about, Amy. So we know that the legal field is 64% male, 36% female. And there's obviously in the military, there's, it, you know, it's hard, you can't change things overnight and say we need more generals, female generals or, or minority generals or whatever, if you don't have the pipeline to create such a model. Uh, so there's, there's that going on. But in 2020, 19% of the equity partners were female, uh, which is up uh, 3% from 2016. So uh, a profession that's 64% male, 36% female, 19% equity partners. Relate that to government services out as well, because I don't have the sense, the government feels much more equitable to me, more gender neutral, but I don't know if that's your impression. Well, that that is my impression. And um, I'm I'm glad you raised this because I like to talk about it and I take it a bit personally. Um, I'll tell you, I graduated from law school in 1992 and Yale Law Women at the time and still today uh, does a study of women in law firms and what percentage of law firm partners are women. And when I graduated in 1992, the best firms in terms of gender um, diversity uh, were at about 20% women. And my law school class and, and you know the years around my class were at least 50% or approximately 50% female. And so I thought, well, that number is really low, but that number is going to change because we're now graduating 50-50. And so it's, you know, by the time I am, you know, at the partner level, it's going to be 50-50. <laughs> and then I uh, left the Department of Justice in 2014 uh, to join Arnold and Porter. And as I was at, still at the department sort of doing my search and looking at the numbers of women uh, partners in law firms, that number around 20%, uh, Jimmy, which is similar to what you cited, was stubbornly the the number that still persisted. And, and it had, you know, it had improved maybe by 4% since I graduated in 1992, but it's nowhere near 50, obviously. And so I was really surprised in 2014 to see the uh, the numbers so low even still. And then the numbers for, um, uh, for black and other ethnic minority um, partners at firms are also very grim. And so I think the this year, this past year, where because of Black Lives Matter and all the events that have been taking place, there has been a focus on diversity and inclusion at law firms like mine and I think elsewhere as well. Um, I, I think we're all paying attention to what our what are our obligations individually to improve this situation. Um, my firm has had some very family-friendly policies in place for many years, but I think it's still just a tough environment and um, and there, there are some structural issues that we've been able to address, like having an on-site daycare center. I think that's helped tremendously. But there are still just persistent um, biases against, uh, you know, women and other minorities that I think are are really hard uh, to address effectively. And we're all grappling with those. So um, I, I think it's a, a very good 
uh, question and I don't have any answers, but I feel badly because I feel like my generation of women at least has failed to uh, to move the numbers up and to attain the level of um, partnership that numbers that I wish we we had. But I, I always, when I speak to students, challenge them to, to do better and to uh, um, to get those numbers back to where, you know, up to where they should be. I will say that I too feel like government is better and maybe it's just a, a less, um, I'm, I'm not sure what, what is better about government as a work environment, um, but I do think the numbers are, are higher and it may be that they're, um, for whatever reason, they're the commercial um, competition um, isn't the same as it is in private practice. I, I don't really have a great answer for that, but I, I, I do think there are more women um, in management positions uh, in government to, to government's credit. I have the sense that ABA does a lot to work on creating opportunities for women in the field of national security. Um, I always am alarmed when I see that statistic about uh, lawyers of color and how it remains static. Uh, the ABA report, alas, does not sort of get into it and, and try to figure out why that is the case. And one of the questions we've had on the chat bar, and one question was, uh, any insights into why we have a sort of a static? So so we see the the gender thing is, is happening because we see now more women going to law school. And, you know, at some point, 50-50 is going to catch up. Um, it, it can catch up quicker, but it's going to catch up. We don't see that with people of color. Um, yep. You're not obliged to comment if you don't don't have a thought on it, but but it is something I, that the audience should think about. Yeah, no, I, I don't have a great answer, but um, there has been a lot of thinking done uh, about this. I, I signed on to a letter in support of a, a very constructive letter that the black prosecutors of the DC US Attorney's Office wrote about the challenges that they see and the ways that things could be improved. And I thought that that was a very good letter. Um, and uh, and so I, I think that more could be done um, to address these issues. Um, I, I think I think it's complicated and it's very, you know, bound up in, in why does racism persist in, in society, even though most people don't think that they individually are racist, but yet there certainly are um, obstacles. And I think there's a lot of passive racism that we all don't think about um, just, you know, in, in terms of who we, who we choose to mentor in our own lives. And I think that that needs to be fixed. I think we all need to think about doing better. Um, and I, I see the legal profession addressing that in light of the events of the past year in a way that I haven't seen it uh, as a focus in prior years. And so I hope we can all work together to improve those numbers, but they are certainly not where they should be. Fun question. This goes back to our prior discussion. And then I want to ask you one more question about uh, the workplace, uh, the legal workplace, and then turn to role models. The question was uh, dealing with uh, rule 1.6 and the principles of confidentiality. Um, those of us, which is to say most of us who are working from home uh, as lawyers have obligations to the client uh, to maintain confidentiality. And as it turns out, that includes in front of our kids and in front of our dog and in front of um, whoever else is working at the home or going to school at the home. And therefore, do you, do you have some thoughts about uh, ethical obligations while sitting at the dining room table with seven other people about talking to clients and what you say in that context. Well, so this was an issue even before COVID, but I agree with the the questioner that this is aggravated now. But you know, 
I, I assume I'm not the only person who's ever been driving my, you know, school-aged child to or from school and gotten a call on my car phone. And then is, is your, you know, conversation, does your child sitting next to you breach the attorney-client privilege? I think we all have to sort of apply a rule of reason to that uh, and, and try to get our work done um, despite these, you know, impositions of life. But certainly COVID has been challenging. My husband is a judge and for a time he was in the kitchen and I was in the dining room and we were hearing these other conversations and that was not good for either of us. And so we redid our guest room to a home office and that's where I am now. And now we at least can't overhear one another. And, and so, you know, but we're lucky to have a home where that's possible and, and not everyone has that. I just had a meeting earlier today with one of our associates who said, I'm, I'm in the basement because my wife and kid are upstairs and I had a deposition. And so we're all working around this um, to try to uh, adjust and, 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 make do with with what we can. I, I do think it's a concern, especially if you have a conversation with a client that should be confidential. Um, doesn't matter if it's your spouse or your child, you have to be very careful to protect confidentiality because we're obligated to do that. And uh, it, it might mean that you can't have that conversation uh, when you would otherwise want to have it um, because you need to go outside and, you know, stand across the street from your house where no one can hear you uh, and have that conversation. It's, um, it's hard, but we all do need to maintain client confidentiality. It's, it's a rule. And a good question and good point, right? The rule remains, the conditions change, but the rule remains. Yep. Um, so here's, here's something that the ABA report also said. They did a poll, and so this is not the Bureau of Labor Statistics, uh, but the poll as part of their report said, half of all female lawyers, so we're, we're public citizens, we're the people who are officers of the court and are intended to uphold the law. Half of all female lawyers said they experienced unwanted sexual conduct at work. And one in four women said they avoided reporting sexual harassment due to fear of retaliation. Mm -hmm. uh, for the record, 6% of men uh, indicated that they had experienced unwanted sexual conduct at work. And we know from the military that the number of sexual assaults of men is, is numerically uh, higher than women just because of the numbers of people. So uh, I was very alarmed when I read that half of all female lawyers, this being the profession that is supposed to uphold the law, uh, said they had experienced unwanted sexual conduct at work. How do you advise uh, attorneys to deal with that on, on either side? I mean, obviously the, on, on the sexual harassing side, the answer is knock it off, but it's not that easy, right? One in, uh, like one in four said they didn't want to uh, report it. And, and so what would you, how would you guide us? How would you guide us in, in how we deal with these issues? Yeah, so it's a, it's a really great question and a tricky one. Um, and I would say that I, I answer it differently being a partner at a law firm where we have to address these issues than I have responded to it in my own career. And so I'll just explain by saying, you know, we can't, I, I can't as a partner, if I hear about, uh, you know, sexual harassment allegation, we have to respond, we have to, you know, take measures to address it. And we can't tolerate that in the law firm, right? And we have a responsibility not to tolerate it. So, um, so we have to be very vigilant that, you know, and we have sexual harassment training every year as um, you do in government as well. I think that, you know, most institutions are pretty good about making sure that everybody's trained and that the training is updated, but the training only goes so far, right? Because these incidents still happen as that very high number um, demonstrates. So, so we all have to 
take responsibility when it's reported, address it, no tolerance, right? But then in my own career, I will say, you know, you mentioned before, I was a prosecutor for a good part of my career. And so I was in the U.S. Attorney's Office working with police officers uh, day in and day out. And um, there is a lot of banter between police officers and prosecutors. And, you know, they spend a lot of time on the street and they just, it's a different environment than a law firm, right? And so I will say that if I complained about every police officer who said something inappropriate in front of me, and I was never actually physically, you know, uh, assaulted, I'm not talking about that, but I am talking about the kind of banter that is really, you know, they had no business acting that way and saying things to me that people said to me. But I'm not going to be the person that's going to complain about every fifth officer I have to interact with on a day-to-day basis. So you do have to establish in your own life some sort of, you know, red lines. Like if somebody does this, if they physically harass you or physically harass someone else, or, you know, um, even if it's the kind of environment that someone establishes that make you really feel uncomfortable, you probably do have an obligation to report it because that person's probably doing this to others. But if it's banter and it's the kind of thing that you can just let slide, then that's often the right answer too, just so that everybody can function together and you can get through these often stressful environments of, you know, administering the criminal justice system, which a prosecutor's office does. So I I guess there's, as a, when it's happening to you, you have to say, is this something I should just let slide? And I must say that during most of my career, I have let a lot of things slide and I don't look back and, and regret that. I think that they're you know, often you do have to just let it go and move on. But, you know, have I also sometimes said something to people? Yeah, every now and then, if it gets too far, you you do have to confront someone and say, cut it off, knock it off. Um, but as a supervisor, if you see it happening to a subordinate, you can't tolerate it. And uh, so one of the things that this number tells me is it's happening. Yeah. Uh, and, and so uh, if you're in an office setting, you need to click set clear cultural guidelines and have a process by which people can feel comfortable coming forward confidentially if they if they feel more comfortable doing it that way. But what about, I mean, let's talk about things that are even more difficult, right? So there's the persistent sort of, I work with a lot of men who probably don't think that they are sexist. And I think that this is probably the problem that, you know, the questioner asking about why lawyers of color, why, why are those numbers low? I'm sure that this happens to lawyers of color as well. I feel like sometimes when I'm the only woman in a group of lawyers and I, you know, offer a piece of advice and my colleagues say, hmm, we're not so sure about that. And then they go and ask another one of my colleagues, you know, in the white collar group, well, Amy said this, and is this really right? I do sometimes perceive that as gendered, like go ask the man. You know, and I I feel like I'm being second guessed. And that's happened to me very frequently, more than I would like to say. And so, and are lawyers of color experiencing that? They probably are. So I think there are these invidious, you know, people who don't, again, people who don't think they're sexist or racist, but mentally aren't confronting the fact that maybe they do have some biases that they need to work through. Very interesting. Thank you, Amy. Thank you for a very thoughtful answer. As we enter our home stretch here, uh, I'd like to ask you, as, as this audience will know, I'm, uh, I find ethical inspiration um, from role models. And indeed, many of the biggest ethical challenges we face are not, and most of them, are not addressed by the model rules, and they're not addressed, addressed by rules at all. Uh, they're unexpected. And, and so what do you do then? You turn to your own internal values. You turn to role models to set to, to guide you uh, through a crisis you did. Dealing with COVID, 
who amongst us had had an entire COVID plan, right? We may have had our go bags, we may have had a, been prepared for a disaster, but I, uh, until uh, last winter, I don't think anybody here had their complete deluxe COVID plan ready to go at home. Um, so we look to role models to say, how should we behave in this context? Um, so Amy, um, who are some of your role models, your legal role models, your ethical role models, pray tell? And then um, uh, one of the questions we got was, what is the greatest ethical challenge you have faced? So perhaps you can weave it all together or <laughs> duck the question with tales of role models. All right. So the the Harvey's question about the greatest ethical challenge that that's going to take me down a rabbit hole. But I, let me let me address the first question about role models, and maybe we can circle back to that because I, I do have some thoughts on it. But the, um, I have been very lucky to have some tremendous role models in my career in in every job that I've been in. There have been supervisors I really looked up to and learned from. And so, you know, I, I could go on and on in response to that question. But when when we first talked about it in preparing for um, this uh, session today, um, I, I thought back to my very first jobs um, out of clerking, and that was um, working for Jamie Gorelick, who was the general counsel at the Depen Department of Defense and then the deputy attorney general. And when I worked for her as deputy attorney general, the attorney general was Janet Reno, and Jamie's principal deputy uh, associate attorney general was Merrick Garland. And so with Janet Reno and Jamie Gorelick and Merrick Garland, I think I have three sort of just amazing awesome role models. Um, uh, and I have, they have stayed with me and, and Janet Reno unfortunately passed away a few years ago and, and I didn't stay in touch with her very closely after she left as attorney general, but I still do remember, and, and you knew her as well, I, I still do remember her mantra being, you know, just do what is right. And she had this way of just ignoring a lot of nonsense and criticism and bad press and, and just pressing forward and doing, you know, following her moral compass and I think, uh, you know, I still think about her a lot and, and, and the, the sort of instinctive answer that she often gave, well, just what is the right thing to do, you know, and, and it's not necessarily what people in Washington think of as the, you know, they might think of what's the press going to be, how's Congress going to react, and those are not the right questions, and, and the right question really is her question, although deciding what the right thing to do is, is often the challenge. So that, and that goes to Harvey's question, I think. So maybe we can come back to that. But with respect to, you know, Jamie Gorelick and, and Merrick Garland, they also, I mean, Jamie Gorelick was just a tremendous role model for me um, and also just very much um, uh, focused on doing the right thing, getting it done, you know, serving the government's interest and uh, tremendously capable. Um, and then Merrick Garland, of course, is just such an ethical touchstone for me and was great to work for and has been, I think, a role model to all of us in how he has handled um, his nomination and the disappointment there with the Supreme Court. Um, and now to have him nominated as attorney general is just a, a tremendous, I think, reward for his just steadfast ethical um, uh, demeanor over the entire course of his career. So those are a few of my role models and I just think tremendous uh, public servants who I was very fortunate to learn from um, early on in my career. Uh, the Janet Reno, uh, so you're right, we uh, we both knew her and worked with her at the same time. And I, I love your description of her steadfast commitment to doing what was right. And the other thing uh, that I took away um, from uh, among many things, but uh, among the other things I took away from Janet Reno is there was never any doubt that if you tried to do the right thing, she'd have your back. Mm -hmm. 
and there was no buck passing there. And there was no tell you one thing in her presence and then throw you under the bus uh, when it all went south. And this was exemplified by her willingness and uh, offer to resign after the Waco raid. And every time I briefed her, uh, I knew that if we came to a conclusion about the law, she would not sell me under the bus uh, when it didn't go right. Um, and and that, that is uh, something I think is important for this audience to hear about her. Um, I wanna ask you to, so that was, you, you gave real insight about what Janet Reno was about. Um, try to do the same with Merrick Garland. So you said the, the manner in which she handled his nomination. So the, the character of grace, right? The, the, the trait yes. of grace uh, certainly describes Merrick Garland uh, and, and grace under pressure, whatever the context is, whether the context is Supreme Court nomination or Oklahoma City bombing, never getting, never being flappable or always acting with calm demeanor. Uh, which is so soothing to everybody else who's running around. Just tell us something more about uh, Merrick Garland, please. <laughs> he he is so uh, just um, just a tremendous person. I, I worked with him closely enough that I would say that in the in the throes of the Department of Justice, um, you know, front office operations, um, he was not always calm. I will just say that, but he was also dealing with responding to the Oklahoma City bombing, and so. You know, I think it's hard to remain calm when events are happening and you have to mount a response. And he, you know, he got on top of the um, response and managed it and got top prosecutors to handle the case and really shepherded the whole prosecution through the department really, really well. And I think all of us who worked with him just saw that as, as you know, one of his stellar achievements. I, there, But there are many episodes. I think as chief judge, he's been phenomenal. Um, he has been able to lead the court. I think when, before he joined the court, the DC circuit had this very bad partisan split. And um, there still is, you know, of course, always, you know, there are cases where there are partisan outcomes, but I actually think he as chief judge um, has managed to bring the court together and unify the court in a way that many would not have expected. And, um, and that is, to the credit of other judges on both sides of the partisan divide there. So um, that's another, you know, an, another trait that I think is is remarkable and worth noting about him. Uh, thank you. Thank you. So uh, do you want to take a stab at Harvey's question? Yeah. So what is the greatest ethical challenge? And so this goes to an issue of um, that I've been thinking about a lot um, with respect to being a government lawyer. So I was a government lawyer for most of my career. And I think there are times when you have to face very difficult questions about where, what your role is and, and where your role ends. And, um, and there's been a lot written about that recently because of the controversies um, in the Trump administration and particularly in the White House counsel's office and how did the various White House counsels navigate, you know, their duty to the White House as an institution, their duty to the United States more broadly, and their duty to the actual president who was in the White House. And I think that there are very different ways that you could draw those lines. And the struggle I had in my own career, just one example, um, was, you know, in relation to President Obama's 
executive orders relating to the closure of Guantanamo. I, I was assigned to that as a as an attorney working closely with Attorney General Eric Holder, who was responsible for um, executing some of those executive orders. And we felt very strongly that certain Guantanamo detainees should be brought to the United States to be prosecuted in federal court. And I personally felt very strongly about that. I think that the military commissions, while set up in good faith and run by people trying to do the right thing, were not mature enough to handle those cases. And, and they haven't succeeded very effectively in getting those cases up and running, which is what we frankly predicted. But I, I had some real struggles with, you know, how aggressively do I need to assert my Amy Jeffers's opinion that, you know, this is the right thing or wrong thing to do when I was only one lawyer in a Department of Justice in an administration where there were lots of competing priorities and people on, you know, various sides of, you know, sort of how much do we uh, need to um, to do to make sure that we get Guantanamo closed and get these detainees tried in the United States. I, I feel like that was a struggle that I had where it was internal to the government um, and there were people with differing views and it was hard to just a, a real challenging time in internally with respect to, you know, how to exercise that role um, in the most effective way and consistent with your obligations where agencies had differing views and individuals had differing views. So that comes up a lot in government lawyering. And I think it's a, a difficult, difficult question. Since we're nearing the end, I would like to answer Harvey's question in a slightly different way. Sometimes people think the greatest ethical challenge is hinged to the greatest problem. But as Frank Johnson said about the civil rights cases, they were his easiest cases because it was so clear what the Constitution commanded. And sometimes the hardest decisions are only hard because of the pressure, but not because it's not clear what the right thing to do is. In current context with COVID, I think sometimes it's hard not to do the right thing when the rule is clear or when the law is clear or when your moral compass is clear. It's hard to know when to step in to correct somebody else when they're not doing something quite right. Um, and as a junior lawyer, it's hard when you see someone shade a fact or treat someone poorly. And I found it very hard to know when to step in and when to step back or when to not step in, because you can't go around correcting every action by every person in every building that doesn't comport with your sense of civility or your sense of honor. But I think this question comes up in present day context with COVID. What do you do when someone's not wearing a mask or not wearing a mask properly? What do you do when they're not taking quarantine seriously? And I think we're all asked uh, as lawyers, and, and we know from the preamble to the model code, we're all public citizens. We have a higher duty. Uh, we have a higher duty in government to support and defend the Constitution. We have a higher duty as public citizens to try and get this right, to try and get this great country back on the right track. Every day we're faced with the ethical dilemma of how do you deal with people who are or are not complying with what we need to do to get through this terrible pandemic. My pitch to you, please, is be leaders here because we're all public citizens as lawyers and officers of the court and help others see the path forward. Amy, you've been a wonderful guest. You get the last word, the last comment, the last one takeaway. Yes, I would just say it's just an honor to be here and to 
be in front of this group. I, I would say uh, all of you attending this are probably attending because you have a sense of the importance of the rule of law. And I want to thank, you know, certainly you, Jamie, and the ABA for promoting the rule of law as effectively as you all do. It's a core value for me. It's a, been a touchstone of my career. I just really uh, respect the work that you all do. And thank you very much for having me. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.